0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with T.R. Johnson, author of the book New Orleans, A Writer's City. T.R., welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Yeah, certainly. I've been living in New Orleans for almost 25 years. I'm an English professor at Tulane, and I'm also a jazz disc jockey at the local uh, community radio station and WWOZ. And um, I live near the river uh, here in an old part of town. And after Hurricane Katrina started teaching a class on the literature of New Orleans, And as I got more and more involved in the subject, I've been living in the city about, oh, I guess six years when Katrina happened, uh, but started teaching that class right after the storm uh, with a new sense of urgency about what New Orleans means and trying to articulate that for students and and letting New Orleans be a doorway into them to think about all kinds of profound things. That became over the years a certain kind of uh, expertise that I was never really trained in formally, but that I kind of arrived at uh, over the process of doing that course, So much so that in 2019, I was able to put out an edited collection of essays by a wide range of academics on uh, the literary history of New Orleans. And then on the strength of that, uh, Cambridge was excited enough to say, we'd like to do a new book that's entirely in your voice um, and reach for general readers and uh, really sort of skew things toward the uh, contemporary scene as much as possible. And I thought, gosh, that sounds like a great project. I would love to do it. And so I jumped into it summer of 2020. You know, the city was kind of closed and shut down at that time. And it was the perfect timing to take on a project like this. And uh, so I jumped into it. And now here we are. It is, uh, it is now published and uh, I'm excited to bring it into the world.
0: I'm thinking about how your description explains nicely the, the voice you bring to it. I mean, there's so much knowledge that is contained in your book about, about literature and the city, and yet it's not academic. You don't you know, talk in terms of semiotics or, 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 or academic jargon. You're you, you basically are explaining sort of the ways in which the lives of these writers are, are interwoven into the city and how they help bring the city to life in a very uh, special way.
1: Thank you so much for saying that. That was what I was really seeking to do. I sort of feel like there there's a lot of theory, kind of behind the curtain, as it were, kind of uh, at the foundation of the book. It allowed I was I was thinking about the book in certain ways that made me want to focus on the streets themselves as a kind of. Um, public thoroughfare that gets constant daily use, but that also has kind of a rich historical and political legacy uh, in terms of kind of dividing certain neighborhoods, joining certain neighborhoods. Um, And that became... A, they're kind of living memorials that we use all day, every day. And, and so that's kind of the, the theory more or less behind it. But I really was committed to making this a book for the general reader, not a specialist, not the colleague down the hall, uh, not someone with a kind of esoteric novel, knowledge of how we sort of theorize cities in the academic humanities at this point and so on. I really wanted this to be a book for everybody. And so, as I say, I kind of kept the theory sort of baked into the foundation rather than um, wearing it on the sleeve uh, and getting in the way. Um, So that's how I kind of the intellectual kind of deep foundation of it. And this is kind of what led me to focus on the streets themselves in the the city in the book.
0: And that's where I was thinking as I was reading it, how this would be great. as a guidebook in, in so many ways i mean it, it's it's so much more than that but I, I just could envision myself with a copy in hand walking these streets and and you know you know kind of reading some of your passages and 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 visiting those sites and kind of imagining it with my mind's eye you know seeing what they're uh what what they were and and, and you st- and so you basically have these chapters that are structured around those streets themselves, as you just said. And, and how it, it's fascinating to think about how as, as, you know, you're going through it, that there's so many, uh, ghosts, some fresh, uh, some, you know, as old as, as, as the, as the city itself. And, and and how they, you know, the, the, they just seem to have such, it just underscores how rich of literary uh, uh, heritage New Orleans possesses. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad that that's your experience in the book because that's very
1: much what I was going for. I kind of had, obviously, in the back of my mind, the template of a sort of traditional guidebook, but that was only kind of the skeletal template. I wanted to sort of hang on that skeleton, the, the clothing, if you will, of... Um, you know, kind of extended essayistic sort of ruminations, a kind of a sort of a very reflective ramble down these streets. Not, you know, not just a set of addresses and a few sentences with each, that kind of thing. That's been done many times. But this is kind of um, literary essays about the literature that are shaped as a kind of... uh, a ramble, as I like to call it, up and down these these five really crucial streets, the streets that are the real uh, arteries of these distinct parts of town and these distinct literary legacies. And so that's how it worked out. I'm so glad that, that you can imagine yourself uh, moving around the city with uh, with one eye on the book and the other eye uh, on the road, you know
0: let's start by looking at, at, at the roads that, that themselves that you described like you, you opened the book with, with Royal Street now why did you choose Royal Street to open with and 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 what what role does it play in the literary life of the city well you know that's it, I, I, began,
1: I wanted to begin with Royal Street precisely because it is where the literature of this city really properly begins, it's the main thoroughfare historically of uh, the Vucare, the old quarter, the French quarter and so the The first really serious rumbles of what would become this astounding literary legacy really begin along that Royal Street corridor. Um, This was where a very proud Creole culture kind of sprang to life really in the 18th century. And then it um, became even more intense uh, early decade of the the first decade of the 19th century as people fleeing the Haitian revolution moved into the city and, and brought with them a very distinct Uh, culture, uh, and a very high culture in many ways, that was very different from the rest of the United States. And this uh, begins to lead to a very robust literary culture, 1840s, 50s, and 60s, that then laid the groundwork for um, uh, not just sort of a proud Creole legacy, but but then as we come into the 20th century, kind of waves of Bohemia began to kind of coalesce in the quarter uh, it, to, to an extraordinary degree in the 1920s. And then again in the 1940s, there was another wave in the 60s and into the 80s. Um, after that, it becomes you know gentrified and touristified in ways that it's right now a great destination and it's a very beautiful place, um, but it's no longer kind of able to it's just too expensive to uh, kind of be the home base of an important literary Bohemia. The way it was, really, arguably from the I would say the 1890s up through the 1980s, with that with that Afro Creole community uh, being the real foundation for it in the middle part of the 19th century. So that's that's kind of ground zero for the literary mystique. The aura, the astounding legacy and reputation of the city. Um, It branches out from there, but that's really where it begins, and so that's where I chose to begin the book. I actually start the book with the extraordinary story of uh, John Howard Griffin, who wrote Black Like Me, and his odyssey, his experiment, this very strange experiment in which he's a white man who uh, used drugs and, and so on to transform him to darken his skin enough that he could pass for African-American, and then wrote a book about what it was like to experience the South from that perspective, um, uh, in, in a very limited way, obviously, as you sort of in disguise. But uh, his journey, his odyssey, his experiment begins at the foot of Royal Street at the famous Hotel Monteleone. He checked in there, transformed himself into a someone who could pass for black, and that's where that saga begins and becomes one of the literary sensations of the mid-1960s. That Hotel Monteleone is where Truman Capote always claimed he was born. Not quite true, but he nearly was born there. His mother was living there when she went into labor to, to birth him. And so it's an important kind of... Um, Ground zero there at the foot of Royal. Tennessee Williams has work set right on that first block of Royal. And as you make your way down Royal Capote, we run into Capote's apartment, the place where Faulkner lived, Um, Catherine Ann Porter, Robert Penn Warren. Um, all of these, uh, extra- Charles Bukowski coming into the later years, uh, lived along Royal, and um, even Tom Robbins' Jitterbug Perfume. Uh, take, some of the main characters own a perfume shop on Royal Street, so that stretches into the 1980s. So Royal was the natural place to start, and from there I go to very different parts of town.
0: I was thinking about how after reading that chapter and there's so much uh, literary history, not just New Orleans, but really of, of, of America concentrated there. It's it's hard to believe that there's some, some left over for the rest of the city to share.
1: It, it is. It is really it's you know, it's so funny. I As I began to work on that chapter, I had that same experience. It's like, my God, the more I dig into this, the more extraordinary it becomes and it became you know it's like when i first began to grapple with it, it became, this is i too unwieldy i don't know that i can do this and over time it took about six months to write that first chapter once i handled royal street the rest of it became relatively easy to do there's there's other corridors of incredible, incredibly dense literary significance, but the, grappling with that first one was the toughest. Once I got the hang of it, uh, I was able to to handle the other ones a little more expeditiously. But but it's true; it's um, the layers of literary history on that dozen blocks of oil that runs from Canal to Esplanade. It's just um, it's just unfathomable, and it runs, you know, really for a little over a century. Uh, it, it was home, as I say, to these uh, very important newspapers through the 19th century. And then and then becomes, as I say, a kind of um, home away from home for this uh, literary bohemia that uh, the legacy, as you say, for American literature is hard to fathom. I mean, it's just uh, from O. Henry to Catherine Ann Porter to uh, Harry Cruz to Charles Bukowski, Faulkner, Sherwood Anderson. It just the list just, it just keeps going, you know
0: and as you explained though it's it's not contained you know that that you know heritage spills over into other streets. And the next chapter, you, you, you demonstrate this with your description of St. Claude Avenue. And I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about, you know, the ways in which that, that differ from Royal Street and, and, and the literary history that's reflected there. Absolutely.
1: You know, it's funny, today, uh, the world along St. Claude Avenue, this is kind of where the Bohemia has gone. So in chapter two, I take up St. Claude, and we sort of think of it as the, um, you know, as the kind of grandchild of that literary Bohemia that was based in the quarter, uh for for so long it's now uh along the saint claude corridor historically a much more hard scrabble part of town there was it was never home to these proud ostentatious creole Townhouses and mansions, uh, and and the kind of uh, commercial and political hub of the city. It was always kind of a hard scrabble working class, kind of stretching out into the sort of marshy swamps. On what was at the when it first began to be a place where we lived, it was a swampland. Really, there's a berm along the a natural levee along the river that uh, some people had sort of settled on. But very quickly, as you move away from the river and coming downstream away from the quarter it's marshland and swamp. Around the turn of the 20th century, they figured out how to drain these swamps and build more or less permanent dwellings on them. Of course, now in Hurricane Katrina, we saw that you know the water wants to be there when the water uh, when the water comes this way, and so it Sorry. suffered terribly, just catastrophically in Katrina. But from the early 20th century up to Katrina, it was a place where they began to build houses, and it was a, a generally a white working class neighborhood initially with a lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe. But then also in the middle part of the 20th century, it became a really significant concentration of African Americans. You know, most famously, streetcar named Desire is really an expression of this neighborhood. Stanley Kowalski, the protagonist, is a archetypal sort of Eastern European immigrant living uh, in the hard scrabble, sort of industrialized dock working culture of the city. And uh, Tennessee Williams, uh, you know, hit what is arguably the most iconic play of the American stage is in that old uh, Ninth Ward population, that old white working class Ninth Ward population of the middle part of the 20th century. and um, it, But many others, you know, as I say, the Bohemia that is here now and has been really, excuse me, since the oh, since the seventies and eighties. And um, going back, there's just there's a very proud African American tradition going you know, Kalamu yassalam the famous African American activist and poet, essayist and cultural organizer, he grew up in the Lower Ninth Ward, just down the street from a man named Marcus B. Christian, who used to correspond with Langston Hughes and County Cullen and leading lights of the Harlem Renaissance. They lived they were virtual neighbors in the Lower Ninth Ward when Kalamu, then Valerie Ferdinand, was living on St. Maurice Street, just down the block, was Marcus B. Christian, who wrote a thousand page history of, of black people in Louisiana and uh, a very famous poem called I Am New Orleans, and uh, countless, you know, hundreds and hundreds of poems that are in an archive out at the University of New Orleans now. The Goodness of St. Rock by Alice Dunbar Nelson is uh, is a, a, a work of this neighborhood, and a variety of works around the Desire Pro- Housing Project, which is an extraordinary chapter in the city's history. and um, Nelson Algren's Walk on the Wild Side features, you know, significantly here in this neighborhood, right along the river, called the Bywater, part of the St. Claude corridor. Um, so, an extraordinary run of literature and, and a lot of literary activity today. I mean, there's important poets and novelists and essayists living up and down uh, these streets. I happen to live in in the along the St. Claude corridor. And, um, it is an incredibly vibrant literary community. The, the famous singer-songwriter Ricky Lee Jones is just around the corner from me, and um, John Waters, the famous sort of indie underground filmmaker, lived here in the uh, early '70s, right before he became famous. So, um, it's an extraordinary place, and and the density of the. Um, Literary and cultural history is hard to state. Fats Domino is from this neighborhood. The Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court case started the railroad tracks right here on the St. Claude corridor. So it's different from the quarter in, in that it, there's, it doesn't have that kind of international glamour and elite kind of financial legacy uh, as a kind of cultural hub. But as a kind of spillover and other the other version of New Orleans, it's um, it's it's extraordinary. You know, it's impossible to overstate Fats Domino's significance to the history of rock and roll. He, you know, it really kind of begins with him in many ways um, and uh, goes mainstream uh, through him as it moves to Elvis and so on. But, but he was doing that music in the 40s to great acclaim locally. And it finally uh, sort of jumped into a national forum a uh, handful of years later.
0: You, you highlight a part of your book. You highlighted a part of your book just now that, that I think kind of points to the degree to which you, the subtitle of your book is an understatement it, it, you are writing about new orleans as a, a literary city but you're also writing a, a cultural history of the city you're incorporating uh film and, and especially music into it i think that comes across really well in the uh next chapter which is on uh esplanade avenue uh where you talk about where you talk about j- uh, you, you talk a great deal about jazz in that one, and and, and I was thinking as you were describing uh, you know what you do as as a DJ, I was thinking ah it, it, so that it, it, it's it, it, it was it was so fascinating to see how that background of yours informs a chapter where you, where you are getting not just into the literary history of New Orleans but its musical history, which as you describe in the chapter, you know has these you know truly you know uh, you know iconic figures oh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. who, who are part of it yeah absolutely yeah i think you know the music of just
1: that esplanade corridor it's jelly roll morton and Sidney bechet it's alan toussaint the king of r&b composers here and then it comes into modern times uh you know frank ocean and um manny fresh and uh the modern hip-hop uh world that uh is kind of figures so importantly from the seventh ward it's interesting you know when i began to work on this i knew i just I was going to have to talk about music, and I, the way I began to think of it was, this is going to be you know, about the writers of New Orleans, but I can include musicians and musical history in there because a lot of these writers wrote, a lot of these musicians wrote extraordinary memoirs that I've got to talk about, and also as songwriters, they're working with the written word, and some of them made their place in history as vocalists, and so I figure I'm really working with people who are making a very serious historic engagement with, with the the word, be it written or sung, uh, composed on part, as, as part of a musical composition or as a novel. And, and when these memoirs by some of these f- musical figures are especially profound, I call them literature and, and want to bring them into the mix. Sidney Bechet's is an astounding meditation, almost mystical in thinking about, um, how he inhabits the music, how the music inhabits him. And, um, Bonnie Bergard, a great clarinetist, wrote a really important memoir, and and so this was uh, this became folded into that Esplanade chapter just inevitably, uh, you know, Fats Domino in the Saint Claude corridor. But as I could turned to Esplanade, the dense layers of musical history along that street, and the and the particular engagement with the word uh, among those players and, and and musical thinkers, I had to talk about it, and and had a great time with it. Esplanade was a tricky chapter too because the density. Along that, uh, just that few miles that run from the river out to City Park, the old cypress swamp out there, there's so much to talk about. Solomon Northrop was uh, trafficked through the slave pens, the slave markets along Esplanade. And Kate Chopin's The Awakening, the main character lives in a house basically across the street from where Solomon Northrop was trafficked. Um, All the great, extraordinary voodoo history around Marie Laveau and her daughter is basically anchored along the Esplanade Corridor. It just goes on and on. Um, At the far end of that corridor is a place called the Colored Waves Home, where Louis Armstrong uh, was taken as a young boy. He was just sort of living in the street, pretty, pretty freely, and got in some trouble with the law, and he was taken to live at the Colored Ways Home, and that is where he first lifted a horn to his lips, and obviously from there changed the course of modern music. Um, and that's that's at the far end of the Esplanade corridor, just beyond an old uh, Potter's Field, um, a, a, a graveyard for the enslaved and and for those who can't afford the expensive mausoleums. Uh, just beyond that. That Popper's Field is uh, the the old colored way song where Armstrong first learned to play.
0: And, and this gets to another aspect of your book that I you know, we've uh, touched upon, but but it's probably worth highlighting, which is that you're not just simply writing a book about curiosities. You're not just saying, you know, in this house was born this figure and this person. It was here that this person composed that. You're, you're talking about the interaction between the city and these figures and and and, and how you know, the life of the city not 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 the literary life but the broader life just you know it, it, you know shaped their lives and is reflecting their works and i was thinking about how that comes true uh comes out very well in uh your chapter on the basin street quarter I, I love how you open it with with with, with a, a Toni Morrison work, and very quickly you know start talking about you know a, a, an aspect about New Orleans life, which is very famous or infamous, which is you know the, red, the 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 red light district and and what's going on there.
1: Absolutely, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's one of the the surprising discoveries I made as I began to work on this book is the way the the literary activity, the activities around the word that have happened in these different neighborhoods, oddly enough, tend to cohere around certain kinds of themes such that, you know, the theme of the Royal Street work is all masquerade, double identity, kind of not being quite sure who someone is. St. Claude has its own theme. So does Esplanade. And when I get to Basin Street, I was just stunned at the degree, the degree to which all of the Major writing about that part of town coheres around a great preoccupation with memory, specifically the way music and memory kind of fit hand in glove. Um, Music as a way, and this comes from Sidney Bechet's biography, autobiography, in fact, music is a tool for remembering Um, for coping, for managing the cataclysmic traumas of the slave trade and the uh, New Orleans was the hub of human trafficking. Storyville, the red light district, is a kind of unwitting memorial to that practice, as my colleague Joseph Roach has pointed out. A, a, a red light district is a is a scene of of bodies with price tags, uh, which is not to say very different from what the slave markets were. It's a rental market as opposed to ownership, but that is a ver- it's a version of the same thing, and. Um, That kind of unwitting memorial uh, to the past shows up in other kinds of forms all through the major literature. The great poet Brenda Marie Osby, who writes so much about the surrounding neighborhood of Treme directly adjoining uh, Basin Street, her her great theme is memory. It is a poetics of memory and memory as a kind of sacred, even ritualistic uh, form of ancestor veneration of being in a kind of dialogue with death with those who have gone on before us, and that the purpose of her poetry, like so much music of that neighborhood, is to honor those who have gone before us, and uh, a kind of ancestor veneration, um, music music and poetry as in service to memory. There's a dazzling memoir, in fact, a number of them that have come out of that neighborhood, but most importantly, Albert Woodfox, an African-American man who was in the Black Panther Party, was organizing Black Panther activity at the Angola Penitentiary where he was serving a short sentence. A guard got killed. He got blamed for it. He spends 43 years in solitary confinement. He survives. He comes out in 2016, writes a memoir called solitary that I think is one of the most extraordinary uh, stories ever to come out of the city. And it is a profound as a memoir. It is a work of memory, but also about, um, uh, the way memory worked in his project, he said how he stayed sane during those 43 years in solitary confinement was he had a purpose. He said, he said, my purpose in keeping my head together was to honor my ancestors. He said, I did it for them. And so um, the heroic, uh, even kind of mystic practices of memory in that neighborhood are um, so profound, it just gives me goosebumps when I contemplate them. And it, as I say, it shows up in the way Sidney Bechet talks about his music. It shows up in Brenda Marie Osby's poetry. It's at the center of Albert Woodfox's survival strategy, doing 43 Years in Solitary. And other, other chapters have of uh, their own other themes. You know, there's Esplanade and Saint Claude, Royal Saint Charles has a theme, and so that was one of the surprising discoveries I made. You mentioned that and I should quickly interject. You mentioned the Toni Morrison manuscript. That too is about a kind of journey into African American memory, the collective memory of of Black America. It's a she wrote a musical called. Um, uh, New Orleans, the Storyville musical. And it was uh, never published and never performed. I found it in the Princeton, the Morrison archives at Princeton, and lead off that chapter on Basin Street uh, talking about this lost, well, not quite lost uh, because it was in the archives at Princeton, but this largely unknown Tony Morrison manuscript uh, that's all about Storyville and all about the work of remembering.
0: And, and I find the fact that either way you describe how there's evidence that the, the manuscript was. Uh, you know, partially burned, you know, you, you have signs that, that it had been, uh, you know, exposed to fire. As as, as There's something very, uh, you know, kind of maybe poignant and, and, and very uh, telling about it in a way. And, it kind of, and I thought it connected very nicely to the what you described in terms of how so many of these writers are coming to terms or processing or expressing aspects of, of New Orleans very, uh, you know, troubled and complicated past. Oh, thank you for
1: saying that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, it's so funny. It was kind of unwitting on my part. I didn't quite consciously intend this, but by starting that chapter, describing the kind of flame-gnawed manuscript of Toni Morrison's that is itself a work about remembering African-American experience, that manuscript has come through fire and survived, as has the population of that neighborhood. Um, It's a metaphor for the history that 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 cultural center is all about uh, preserving the memories very specifically of coming through slavery and and michael and famous title coming through slaughter Um, just as that manuscript came through fire to survive in that princeton archive the population of tremay came through the fire the hell of slavery to uh, produce these cultural wonders that we know that the world knows as uh as a as the music of the city jazz most prominently but r&b and gospel and rock and roll and and now hip-hop
0: mm-hmm. now as you uh continue in, in through your book you, you start to you know exp- expand your focus to include other neighborhoods as well and i was thinking of, of your chapter upon uh, saint charles avenue and garden district and you, you start incorporating writers who are uh who the uh, casual readers might be uh, a bit more familiar with and i was thinking here about uh you know john kennedy o'toole uh, and rice and and how you know they they, they reflect the degree to which you, new orleans as a writer city is not just the writer city for previous generations or uh, for uh, a few, you know, scholars, but is in fact one in which literally millions of readers still engage with to this day. Absolutely,
1: you know, Anne Rice's case is so spectacular. Um, as you, you know, as you say, she's. She's a vital presence in the contemporary publishing industry. Her works have sold in excess of 150 million copies. I think that there is probably no single figure who has done more to shape the global, the world's popular, popular imagination of the world of this city more than Anne Rice. You know, I mean, it's I share her works in 80 or 90 languages now, 150 million copies out there. I can't think of anybody who has done more to shape how the world sees this place than she did. And um, she uh, grew up uh, around the Garden District in the Irish Channel, born in the Irish Channel, very close to the Garden District. And then with her astounding wealth on the uh, success of her work, Began to collect mansions in the garden district as a kind of hobby. I think it, she owned six, eight, nine of them at, at one time or another. And they are all, each of them are just uh, dazzling. And, and,
0: uh, nice hobby if you can get it, if yeah, <laughs> you can afford it.
1: Exactly. It's, it's uh, not in my budget, but, uh, it, it were, it was certainly possible for her. And it's a, it's an extraordinary story because she grew up in a very hard environment. Uh, her mother had a very severe alcohol problem, died of alcoholism when Anne was in her teens. Um, she left, uh, the family kind of left the city at, when she was a senior in high school, I think partly just from the grief of, of seeing her mother disintegrate this way, moved to Dallas and then on to San Francisco at age 19, around 1960. And um, later in that decade, she began to write about vampires. She lost a daughter uh, to a form of leukemia, a blood disorder, and became preoccupied with blood as a metaphor and so on. And by the early 70s, she had a manuscript that her husband immediately said, our lives have changed. We're going to be fabulously rich from this. And it turned out to be true. She, uh, you know, by the mid 70s, that was well on its way to becoming Interview with a Vampire, was a cult favorite. And the cult just kept growing and kept growing and kept growing until she, uh, you know, she wrote, I think, ultimately 35 novels that kind of spun out from around that initial project. And, um what a story and it, and it is a, you know, as a story of blood and, and power, it's uh, it it's kind of fits metaphorically with, you know, a kind of wider history of the garden district and of the American, what we call the American part of town, the St. Charles corridor, which is a very different, you know, there's a lot of, it's a big part of town with different areas to it. The university district, the Irish channel, an area called central city, uh, that has a very important history. But Anne Rice is, um, is a towering figure. And of course, she died just a year or two ago, but um, particularly in the years she lived in the city, which was mostly the 90s and the first decade of the 21st century. She was just a towering figure, a person of uh, real clout and uh, a famous thrower of of great parties and and just a uh, formidable presence in the city.
0: Now, in your final chapter, you, you have this, you, you call it outskirts. You, you describe the outlying neighborhoods. And yet what I was, uh, what I what I noticed in it was that you were talking in that chapter about a lot of writers whose association with the city was in, in some ways incidental. And I'm thinking here, for example, about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. You, you mentioned uh, the Call of Cthulhu. I'm thinking about Alan Moore, uh, who is, you know, famously not even American. <laughs> He's English. But, but he... But he is, you know, he cr- he contributes to one of the, you know, the uh, 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 a comic character who we associate with bayous and 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 swamps and how, as you explain, it, it's it's very much of a you know New Orleans you know it, it, uh, associated figure as much as uh, so many of the other characters that local writers have written about. Absolutely,
1: you know, when in in Swamp Thing, Alan Moore is explicitly situating. Uh, that comic book series in the swamps that are just south of the city, just across the river and, and down those bayous a little bit, not not 30 miles outside of town. And incredibly important, um, you know, it's on that side of the river going in that, that direction. William Burroughs lived briefly much closer to the city, but Swamp Thing is, is just beyond that. And that's, oddly enough, the same... Uh, place where Beyonce's uh, ancestors have lived for generations and in fact still do. Um, She of course grew up in Houston, but like many Houstonians, they have deep roots in New Orleans. And Beyonce is from that same area where Swamp Thing takes place, Homa, Thibodeau, Louisiana, again, just uh, 15, 20, 25 miles south of the city at most. And And it's true. Uh, it's, I think to really understand the city, you need to think about the way it's surrounded by swamps with all that that implies in terms of swamps are very, pretty much impossible to police. Hence a smuggler's paradise, as I've called it in other contexts. And, and, um, yeah, a place too where the enslaved, uh, can dream of running away to freedom, living as a maroon. And so the swamps are a central spur to the imagination of the city as what you, it's what you run into the minute you move out and away from the town. And as I was talking about with the St. Claude chapter uh, earlier in our conversation, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the minute you left the French quarter, you were basically heading into swamps, um, and uh, with full of maroons and pirates, smugglers, uh, what have you. And, um, and so that's a, its a very important. I feel like you can't really understand New Orleans without thinking about swamps. And of course, with the Alan Moore comic book swamp thing, uh, and some of uh, some other works out there, it's a—we're really seeing in our time in recent decades, the swamps are really getting their due in terms of um, cultural expression and literature that foregrounds them obviously in the aftermath of Katrina, we began to, we just were newly urgently attuned to the way water figures in our lives here and what the future of the city holds, what what the what, what the future holds for the city in terms of water. And therefore thinking about swamps and learning how to live with water and kind of um, not sort of uh, draining the swamps and pushing them away, but learning to let the swamps kind of be with us is clearly the future of the city. Um, creating kind of a lot more lagoons and bayous, kind of drainage areas and holding ponds that will be filled with plants to sort of stabilize them. And they're going to look like swamps. In other words, the city uh, in in 50 years now is going to look a whole lot more like it did in the 19th century, I suppose, um, than it has in any time since then. We're about to get, Hmm. have to get much more uh, comfortable with uh, having a whole lot of water around.
0: Now you conclude your book with uh this excellent uh summary of works, and you, I, I love that what you call it want more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 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 you you describe uh you know various works of 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 history. Uh, various uh, uh, movies uh, for people who maybe want to get an advanced start on that uh, before they read your book. Uh, where would you recommend? It, where would you recommend they start in terms of engaging with this this very rich cultural history of novels? Like, what one novel should they begin with before, uh, as they're reading your book, or what one movie should they maybe watch before they go to the bookstore and buy this?
1: Boy, that's a tough one. That is a tough one because I, <laughs> I, I probably, I imagine, I I bet I talk about 150, 200 different works of. Uh, literature and film, music in here, primary literature. What would be the first thing to read? You know, if you wanted to drop into a history, uh, Jason Berry's City of a Million Dreams is a great general history of the whole city aimed at general readers, and it's a quick dive into the extraordinary stuff here, particularly for newcomers. I think it would be really useful. Um there's a, I think the best movie ever made about the city. It was actually made in the 1980s. It's called Down by Law, and it is a magical, visionary masterpiece about the city, the kind of the the nightscape of the city and the swamps and the Orleans Parish Prison. So it really covers a lot of crucial kind of nodes, if you will, crucial motifs. I say watch Down by Law, read Jason Berry's City of a Million Dreams. Uh go listen to WWOZ, the Jazz and Heritage Station, uh that is the kind of the soundtrack of life in this city, um, with contemporary jazz and traditional jazz and gospel and all kinds of R and B and blues, et cetera. It's that would be the way to kind of um get yourself ready to read my book and then uh, to get yourself a ticket and come on into town.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a fantastic invitation. Indeed. I well, hope everyone will come. Uh We've uh, apologized. Uh, we thank you for the time you, you've taken to spend with us. Before we go, uh, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: You know, that's a, I was. I, I have a, a whole bunch of little things kind of uh, percolating. I've got. I'm writing a uh, sort of a teacher's guide to how to teach the African American poetry of New Orleans, with a particular interest in the work of Brenda Marie Osby. So it'll be basically how to teach Brenda Marie Osby in the context of the Black poetry of New Orleans. I'm also. Just writing a lot of poems myself these days. I'm also just playing the saxophone all the time. <laughs> I kind of I was, I was talking to my uh, I was talking to my brother on the phone last night. And he said, "What are you going to do this summer?" Now that this book is out, what are you going to do this summer? I said, "My goal is to be the laziest man in Louisiana." <laughs> he, said, he said, "He said that's a high bar." I said, "Well, we'll see." You know, um, I just I, I put so much work into this book over the last couple of years that my first priority is to sort of lay in the hammock and be the laziest man in Louisiana from minute when i'm not doing that i'm gonna play the saxophone work on some poems and develop this sort of teacher's guide from there i just don't know um i'm just gonna i'm at a stage in my career where i'm not rushing on to the next thing i think i'm gonna lay in that hammock and uh, until uh, until inspiration comes and if that takes a minute so be it
0: you know well, well congratulations on reaching that point of your career it sounds like the dream <laughs> thank you thank you very much I appreciate it. C.R., thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. And likewise. I enjoyed it so much, Mark. Thank you.